1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 151 of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvilly, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. However, this week, Nick, our director of research and trading here, is filling back in for Matt, who is out of the office today. So welcome back, Nicholas. Good to be back,
2: as always. I'm, I'm filling filling in again. Yeah, it
1: feels like you're starting to get more regular
2: on this podcast. I know. Here, I'm, so. I'm uh, getting caught off the bench a little bit more. You, it's are. Nice. you yeah. are. It's a good get, thing. Getting a little more, more PT. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month of the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 25th. And this data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index down 3.71% for the month and down 16.52% for the year. The Dow down 2.6% for the month and down 11.6% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index down 7.79% for the month and down almost 27% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 3.36% for the month and down 19.65% for the year. Vanguard International ETF X united States down 0.76% for the month and down 12.78% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently uh, yielding 1.04%. Two-year Treasury yield sits at 2.43%. And the ten-year Treasury yield at two point seven seven percent. Moving on to big headlines, uh, current events from the week. Um, I also wanted to make a um, a note on um, one of the things I talked about last week, Nick, and that was missing like the best fifty days of the S and P five hundred return and what that would do to your overall returns over the long term. So we talked about you know typically the S and P 500 has its best days when it's under the 200 day moving average, just because there's a lot of volatility to the Mm -hmm. upside and downside. Um, but just another reason why people should stay at least somewhat invested in my opinion is you can miss some of the best days of the year and it can impact your return. So, um, and this good, was and good luck uh, predicting those best days. Of the right, year. exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and this was uh, from a blog post, uh, Means to a Trend, written by Austin Harrison. And he said that $1 invested in the S&P 500 at its inception would be worth more than $200 today. If you missed the top 50 days, your $1 would have grown to only $4.40. Wow. So that just, it looks a little extreme to me, could be right. But I mean, I think people just get the picture of, you know, if you miss some of the best days throughout every year that it can impact your performance. So um, just another reason why we should have a process in place and not just completely sell and go 100% cash when we're in times like we are right now.
2: Exactly. So
1: Couldn't agree more. Just wanted to uh, point that out because I said I would follow up on that topic, but I will let you talk
2: about ESG funds. Yeah, it's one so of was, Jessup's favorite topics. Yeah, so I was telling Jenna I'll have to be careful not to get on my soapbox here because um, this is something I, that I can go on and on about. Um, but there was a, an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was also on Bloomberg. I'm sure a couple other news sources picked it up, but it was titled, and this is from yesterday, it was titled, SEC to propose more disclosure requirements for ESG funds. And so I thought this was a great time to kind of give some, give our listeners some background on on the ESG Industry and and what this article is about and kind of go through and, and take a bit bit of a detailed view so quick background for listeners is um, At the role I was before just both management. We used to consult on on ESG quite a quite a lot Actually, we've got a lot of questions particularly when I was in the energy industry right. um, from our from our clients and um, Based on this article the the, the industry the investing landscape in ESG hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, back, back then, we used to describe it to our clients as, as the Wild West, it was, it was uh, there's no framework, there's really no rules, no, um, no not, not really any guidelines. Um, and so I, should, I probably should have started at the, at the, at the forefront of, of this, but the people I was consulting with, and I've mentioned this before, were publicly traded stocks and, and their teams, and I was consulting them about their shareholders. So really had, a, had a, a deep understanding of how much ESG capital it is and then what exactly investors had to do to be, co- uh, to be considered an, a socially responsible investor, an SRI, SRI fund. And really all, all these funds had to do was have some type of policy in place where they, they could check a box and say, yes, we look at this data. That's all they had to do is just check that box. And so you could go to one of the major providers like a Sustainalytics or a MSCI, which are big companies that are, are building the data set for all these ESG um, areas and, and data items that you can look at, carbon footprint, et cetera. Um, you know, use of water is another, another example. Um, and so all, all these funds would have to do is go and download a bunch of data from Sustainalytics, and they don't even have to look at it that hard. They can just download it, check. Yes, that's part of our process. And now they're an SRI, SRI fund, right? Um, so this article kind of goes into that, goes into um, a lot of those ideas and, and a little bit more detail. Um, but but what what's going to happen is the SEC is uh, proposing. Um, governing fund names a little bit more strictly which is great and then the other part is to increase disclosure requirements for these funds that are quote-unquote esg funds um which is which is a good thing for investors this needs to happen because again like i said it is a bit of the wild west and if there's no um regulation what you'll what you've had and and uh, the article mentions this is um, greenwashing where these these big banks and and these mutual fund companies will uh you know they'll they'll title themselves esg but again that there's no guideline there's no framework so they can mark up the expense because oh it's esg it takes us more time but all they have to do is download the data and then they can pretty much run it like any other fund right and then they charge the client more so that's called greenwashing so this will help with that um And uh, I think the the big picture here for investors is, you know, we're still in the very early innings of of ESG investing. And in my mind, it's really, it's kind of like where capitalism meets humanitarianism, right? It's that weird crossroads. And, And until there's a regulatory agency like the SEC that comes down and then in tandem with these other, these other data providers like Sustainalytics, like MSCI. Another one is um, Principal for Responsible Investing. It's uh, uh, UNPRI.org, right? So until those kind of regulatory agencies combine with these other data building agencies to create a framework, ESG investing is not gonna change all that much. um, And it will be pretty minimal in in the grand scope of things, as evidenced by the price action that we've seen this year with energy up and outperforming, right? I mean, if if ESG investors were pushing the markets around, (laughs) you have to imagine energy would be outperforming the way it is. Right, exactly. It's a good thing, this this article, um, and and a step towards that, and and it's a good thing for the individual investor just to be more educated as to what exactly they're investing in and to make sure that things like greenwashing don't happen. This is kind of... Well, yeah. And I think it's of important, it.
1: important for, you know, this industry to be more transparent on exactly what ESG means for their company. Right. So, because that can mean so many different things mm-hmm. and it's just, to me, it's, it, you know, in the beginning it was a kind of a marketing gimmick to be like, Hey, exactly. we can charge high, higher fees. we're, investing in socially responsible companies and that type of thing, which is harder because we have to look at more data, right? But if you really dig deep, Nick, I guarantee you can find something or hundreds of things at uh, all these publicly traded companies that don't meet one or two of the ESG guidelines, right? Absolutely. So it's like, how far do you want to go? How far do you want to take this? And my opinion of the markets is that you shouldn't, and again, this might sound a little harsh, it's just my opinion, if you're in the markets for any other reason other than to make money, I feel like you're a little misguided because that's what the markets are there for, right? Yep, exactly. Um, And at what point do you, you know, uh, walk that fine line of being like, hey, I I care about, you know, the environment, I care about companies being responsible, and I agree with that. That is 100%... I'm on board with that. Mm-hmm. But when that goes against your returns that you're saving towards retirement, like, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Right. When it goes against your livelihood. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, do I know if energy is going to outperform over the next five years? No, I don't know. But if it does, I want to I, I be involved in it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, just my two cents. I think, obviously, this is something that is not going away. Um, And I think it's going to get more popular among investors, especially younger investors, Mm -hmm. because I think they have, um, you know, a lot more, uh, they care about this stuff a lot more than previous generations. So I think it's something that everybody needs to be paying attention to. But like you said, I think it's just, it's kind of the wild west right now. And there's not really strict guidelines around it, which I'm sure we'll get there eventually. But again, if you look at any publicly traded company and if you dig deep enough you'll find something that doesn't meet the guidelines
2: exactly and it it will take so much time and effort to shift the landscape because again it's it's that crossroads and of of capitalism and and humanitarianism and the the financial markets are you know it's capitalism right right so (laughs) it's gonna take a lot to shift that yeah a lot i mean it's gonna take mass amounts of, of consumers um, wanting change and, and like you said like funneling their money differently mass amounts I mean the majority of the market regulation and, and more framework work between the issuers and and the companies I previously mentioned so right very early
1: innings. yeah exactly so, and I have and again I want to make it crystal clear I have no issues if a client comes to us and they're like hey I don't want to own um firearm stocks I don't want to own drug companies that type sure, of stuff yeah. right so yeah. and we can work around that but it's just being transparent and honest with them and just saying that's that's completely fine we won't do that or defense names is another big one Um, but we're at that point we're limiting the pool of investments that we can select from. And typically when your investment flexibility isn't as great because you have certain limitations, in my opinion, you know, that may open up the door to miss out on some good opportunities going forward in the future for good returns. Um and again, if it's one or two industries, not concerned about it. But the point I'm trying to make is if you get too constrictive, it's like, okay, like what do we invest in here? Yeah. You know?
2: Exactly. So and I and I I wanna jump in and also give a, a quick disclaimer that says, you know, I I believe in ESG and mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing and I'm I'm happy that it is important. But the the thing that kind of gets me going is is what's happened with this greenwashing stuff where you're misleading investors. That's where that's where I feel passionate about it. You know, it's good to see that where collecting more data on non-climate change and how we can be better as, as a society. Right. Um, but anyway. Cool. I'll leave it there. All right. <laughs> uh, so I'll jump back in. Uh, the
1: first thing I had from tweets and research from the week was a blog post by Ryan Dietrich. Um, and this was uh, titled Six Things to Know About Bear Markets. And this was on May 18th. So I thought this was fitting just given the environment that we're in. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about three of them. So his first uh, note here was that there have been 17 bear or near bear markets since World War II. The average drop was nearly 30 percent and lasted nearly a full year. So again, just looking back at history, Nick, you know this is not an abnormal what I would call. Bear market yet, right? We're actually below the historical mm-hmm. average. Yeah. Um, and typically, these things play out over a year's time. So, you know, we're, you know, sick, almost six months into the new year here. Some could argue that we're getting close to the end. Some say it's going to last for another year. Um, no one knows at this point, but, you know, the average drop is 30%. So the reason I bring this up is that, again, I know it feels way worse than it actually is right now, but we're not even at the average drawdown yet for a bear market. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, The second point that I wanted to bring up that he made was that we've talked about um, in depth on this podcast before and through our newsletters is that midterm years can be quite volatile with the average year down 17.1% peak to trough. So a bear market during this year isn't out of the ordinary. Knowing that helps put this year's drop of 18.1% into perspective. The good news is a year off those lows, the S&P 500 has gained 32% on average, something most investors would likely take right about now. So again, even though times are rough right now, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and that when we do get through this, I think you're going to see some pretty strong moves mm-hmm. to the upside, And which is another reason why... I don't like the idea right now of someone going to 100% cash because I don't want them to miss that. Exactly. Uh, Last but not least, the S&P 500 is down six weeks in a row currently, the longest losing streak since 2011. It hasn't been down seven in a row since 2001. What stands out about this data is if the six-week losing streak is down more than 10% like this one is, then the future returns can be quite strong, up a median of nine point nine percent six months later, and twenty nine point two percent a year later. Mm-hmm. So again, um, you know, when we have weakness in the markets, it just makes the forward returns of the S and P five hundred, for example, that much greater, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, so that was a nice post by our friend Ryan. The second thing I had was just uh, dovetailing off of that um, was a blog article by Peter Lazaroff. We've had him on the podcast before, and it was titled Comments on Bear Markets. Um, So he kind of talked about some similar things that Ryan discussed. So I just want to go over some of the things here. Uh, The first thing he said was losses are completely normal. They're simply the price you pay in exchange for higher expected returns. The table below looks at intra-year declines which are the red dots and annual returns which are the blue bars uh, and these data is tracking back to 1980 so he says drawdowns happen on an annual basis averaging intra-year decline of 14 percent and yet annual returns finished in the black in 32 out of 42 years So I have Jenna put this up on the YouTube uh, channel right now for everybody to see, but you can see, you know, intra-year, how much was the market down from its peak and where it finished, right? So back it looks in like 1986 or 87, it was down... 34 percent at the worst level but it finished up two percent for the year mm-hmm. right and the most recent version of this was covid it was down you know 34 percent and finished up 16 percent for the year so just because again and I've talked to clients about this in depth just because it's been a weak start to the year does not mean that it would be out of the question to finish the year in the green for the markets in general mm-hmm. so um, again drawdowns are a part of investing. And I know over the past couple of years, um, we haven't had very many drawdowns, so it feels different this time. But like Peter said, you know, the average year sees a peak to trough decline of 14 percent at some point throughout the year. Um, and right so that's now, like I think the average spread. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at the worst, the S&P 500 was down almost 20 percent. Now it's down like 16 and a half percent. So um, so pretty average so far, in my opinion. Mm hmm.
2: And I would think that spread would be bigger based on this chart, but I guess.
1: Right. So, um, yeah, so this is a this is a really good chart. So John, I'll throw this up there. Um, It'll also be on our show notes at Jessup Wealth Management on Twitter or excuse me, at Jessup Wealth Management on LinkedIn and Facebook and at Jessup Wealth on Twitter. Um, But, yeah, just a really good chart uh, here by by Peter to show that. Um the next chart that he shows that we'll throw up on the screen for everybody is uh, the S&;P 500 annualized total returns over rolling periods, right? So uh, t- for an example, um, you know, over a 15 year rolling period since the market's inception, there has not been one negative 15year period. So the point I want to try to make here is the longer your time horizon is and the longer you're invested, if you do it for long enough, the periods of negative returns are literally zero, right? So in uh, overall 10-year rolling periods, only 4.7% of those times, uh, there were negative returns. And then the closer you get or the closer you bring the timeline down over one year, um, you know, the range of annualized returns were from negative 43% to positive 54%. So the periods of negative returns were 26.3%. Mm. Um, but just goes to show you again, the market goes up more than it goes down, we're going to have short periods where the market goes down. But you know, if we're in it for the long run, and you don't need this money for the next several years, let's let this thing recover, because we all know that markets go up more often than they go down
2: yeah absolutely um
1: the last thing that i wanted to uh note from peter was this so he shows a chart of a history of bull and bear markets and again i'm putting jenna to work here but we'll throw this up on the screen and this will be on our show notes as well um but it's a history of bull and bear markets all the way going back to our, uh January of 1926 to December of 2021 and i know you're looking at this right now nick it's mm-hmm. pretty astounding to see you know how minor these bear markets look in comparison uh to the bull markets that we've had mm-hmm. since 1926 up until now um Just shows very small, short periods of red declines as opposed to these massive uh, bull market outperformances and just, again, hammers that that fact home that, yes, we're going to have bear markets from time to time. But if you give the market enough time to recover, it always has in the past and has gone on to make new highs. Mm hmm. So, um, you know, he ends the, ends the article off with this. It's periods like these where the market requires you to embrace fear and uncertainty in exchange for the returns you need to compound your wealth over time. Unless you need your entire portfolio to meet living expenses in the next year, the benefit of missing some of the downside is far less impactful than ensuring your capture the upside whenever it comes. Yeah. So, again, and we talked about this a little bit last week. For anyone that has... Uh, money invested that they need within the next year. I personally think that money should be in cash because you know you need that money in 12 months or less than 12 months. That should be in cash so there's no risk that it's gone by the mm-hmm. time you need it, right? Right. But people didn't want to hear that during the raging bull market that we had in 2020 after the pandemic, right? They're like, where should I put my money that I need for a down payment on a house in six months? And my response was always like, it's tempting to to invest that, but yeah. I would feel more comfortable if you have that money in cash ready to go when you need it. Because I don't ever want someone to be in a situation where they had the money and, oh, the market fell by 20 or 25%. Now you don't have it anymore.
2: I'm, I'm chuckling because you said the same exact thing when I started here. And I said, well, do you think, uh, I think I could get away with something like putting it in the market? Right. And make, make, maybe make a little money. And <laughs> yeah, you, you exactly. Said, Just keep it in cash. Just keep it in cash, you know. <laughs> so, I thought about doing the same thing. It's tempting, but it's yeah. a good point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, the last thing uh, was a, another article by uh, Ben Carlson that's comments on bear markets. So I don't mean to be um, too negative this week, but it's just a common theme that I was seeing and we're right in the heart of it right now. So I thought it'd be, it'd be good to share. So um, again, from a blog, blog post, A Wealth of Common Sense by Ben Carlson on May 15th. He said, bonds are supposed to be the stabilizer, the flight to safety, the anchor in the portfolio when stocks fall. It's not normal for both stocks and bonds to go down at the same time. In fact, my research shows there have only ever been four years since 1928 when both U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds finished the same year in negative territory. And for U.S. stocks, he was using the S&P 500. For U.S. bonds, he was using the 10-year treasuries. Those years were 1931, 1941, 1969, and 2018. The worst year for bonds in these four years was a loss of just 5%. Right now, US stocks are down more than 15% on the year while bonds are down more than 10%. Does this mean diversification is broken or is it possible this is just a bizarre market environment because a pandemic sent interest rates crashing to the lowest levels in history And now they're normalizing. I tend to think that it's the latter. So I actually agree with Ben here. I think what you're going to see, Nick, is people are going to think that bonds are done being the safety net of Mm -hmm. portfolios. And people aren't going to want to invest in bonds anymore during rough times. And I think that's going to be a detriment, I think, over the next several years or the next couple of decades. It's just like, just because we had this one event where bonds didn't act the way they should have, there are a lot other factors. And again, this quote unquote, bizarre environment that we're in that we haven't seen a lot of times that stocks and bonds were down at the same time. We also really haven't seen an environment where, you know, the Fed is trying to raise interest rates so quickly to battle inflation right now. And we all know that bonds and interest rates have an inverse relationship, right? So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the 60-40 portfolio and if it's dead or if it's going to continue to work. I don't think it's dead. It's just not working right now. Right? Will it work in the future? I think it probably will because it's going to be a different reason why markets are falling, different yeah. reason why investors are concerned. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily the right time to completely write bonds off um and i just fear that you know when we go through another rough time in the market after we recover people are going to remember this and be like no i don't want bonds i just want it to all go to cash and i think you know just because it bonds haven't worked this one time doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to work in the future it's an
2: anomaly right and Mm -hmm. it's it's a very weird bond environment and and I listen to bond experts, um, guys, you know, fixed income traders uh, on Bloomberg and the morning shows that I watch and whatnot. And, and a lot of the bond guys, they talk about the normalization of the bond market and how it's not really a normal bond market right now because the Fed is has their hands all over it. I mean, if you it's, if you pump all this money into any kind of market, you're kind of changing the freedom of the market in a way, right, right. so of course prices are going to act weird mm-hmm. right I mean if you have a if you have one investor, which is you know in this case scenario kind of what it is dominating the market for a couple year period, it's going to change the market dynamic so um the 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 historic low interest rates like ben Ben mentioned and you know you take that and combine with the fed balance sheet and it is unprecedented so I think things will return to normal. Uh, yeah, to, I to think point, they will right? eventually. It's just going to take yeah. time. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, well, let's see. Speaking of the Fed, this <laughs> takes us right into it. So uh, the first thing I have is a is a chart for uh, for listeners from Compound Advisors and our good friend Charlie Belalo. Uh, it's a research note from from Five Seventeen, and it's uh, about the Fed being hi- uh, behind the inflation curve and. It's a it's a chart here that shows uh, US CPI year over year with the Fed's Fed funds rate next to it. And it's a good chart because I think it it provides some historical context as to just how aggressive the Fed has to be, which is one of the reasons why the market is so angsty and selling off yeah. so aggressively, right? This chart kind of kind of sa- says it all and is a great follow up to to what you were talking about with the bear markets. Charlie says this, the Fed has now hiked rates 0.75%, but they remain far behind the inflation curve with the gap between CPI and the Fed funds rate at its widest level since 1974. In 1974, the Fed funds rate peaked at close to 13%. Today, it's still at 1%. Right. So that's, you know, going back to what Ben Carlson just said, historically low interest rates. Um, and again, in this environment, it's it's pretty drastic, which is why the bond market is stacked and weird and stocks are underperforming. I mean, it's it makes sense, right?
1: Yeah, it does. And I think you can clearly show and we'll have Jenna put this on on the YouTube video as well. But I mean, you can clearly see here that that the Fed is indeed behind behind the curve. And, yeah. you know, everyone's like, well, why is why is the Fed being so aggressive. And this chart explains that. Yeah, um, they, they have to, you know, know they're no backed one, into a corner. No one wants higher prices. And like we talked about, I think, you know, people hate inflation more than anything else, and especially at the pump. And yeah. the Fed is trying to counteract that. But people are just worried that they're too far behind. And by the time they raise interest rates to catch up, that it's going to be time to cut rates again. Yep. Right.
2: And they're going to so, sh- shock you know, the economy. I think the
1: fear is we're going to be in this never ending cycle of like behind of like
2: raising interest rates and lowering interest rates. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a great chart. Yeah. And, and when if, if any listeners are out there and they're thinking, well, gee, how could the Fed miss this? I mean, just look at the chart. What were they what were they doing? I'll take you back to the to the famed word of transitory. <laughs> if you guys will remember, you know, six months ago, yeah, a year ago, probably, probably closer to a year at this point. Mm-hmm. And after COVID, when we had that big V, v uh, recovery in the stock market, you know, inflation started taking off. And the idea that was being tossed around by all these economists was that this inflation was transitory and it was just a reaction of those Massive spikes we saw across the entire globe, and and about the financial system, you know, cash, of, of the personal consumer supply chains, etc. And they thought inflation was going to come down, and it obviously didn't. So that's why they're late late to the party. So right. Exactly. Quick yeah. reminder to to listeners on. Yeah, point.
1: absolutely. You know, and I and I thought it was going to be more shorter lived as well. Um, but it just goes to show you, this is why I don't like um predictions. Yep. Because even the Fed, the chairman of the Fed, thought it was going to be transitory, and it wasn't. And he's who's more qualified to have an opinion on that than anybody else in this country? Yeah, exactly. Right? So that's why I don't like putting you know, predictions out there on what is the market going to do over the next six months. No one has any idea. Yeah. I don't have any idea. You don't have an idea. Jenna doesn't have any idea. The Fed chair doesn't have any idea,
2: Clearly. right? So
1: I just want to throw that out there that is a reason why I do not like that stuff. Yeah, so.
2: exactly. And, uh, and that's not to throw any shade at the Federal Reserve or Chairman no. Powell or anything. These, these economists, they're brilliant. They're brilliant guys. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they get it wrong. Get but guys we're human, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes these brilliant economists get it wrong. It's all right. Um, the next thing I have is, is an update on the personal savings rate. This is also from Compound Advisors and it's a chart on us personal savings rate percentage and it's a good one it shows uh the first stimulus check the second stimulus check and the third one and then it shows where we are now which you know the chart says it's at the lowest level since 2013 yes technically that that's true but the way i look at this chart is okay we're back in a normal range Mm -hmm. from that personal savings rate we saw in in the pandemic um but but the comment that that Charlie made was this how is US consumer spending still so strong despite inflation outpacing wage gains for 13 straight months Americans are saving less and the savings rates moving down to 6.2 is its lowest level since 2013 so his idea is um, I guess signaling concern about, you know, the savings rates back down, but we're still seeing retail spending at a pretty strong level. At what point do we see that start to fall off? Right. And that's, you know, just another kind of negative indicator that people are watching in the stock market, which is why the price. Right. Exactly. Right.
1: And that's how these economic cycles work, Nick. Right. So you have a bunch of demand for a bunch of products. And especially with supply chain issues, we don't have that much product right now. Prices are going to go up. So how do we get those prices to come down? Consumer demand comes down, right? And this is one of the charts and one of the indicators to me is that consumer demand is going to come down over the next six months or one yep. year, just because people don't have as much cash right now, right? Yep. So um, this is just a normal part of the economic cycle that we're in the middle of. We haven't been in, at this point in it in, in some time, um, but it but it is normal and it is playing out how I would expect it to
2: play out. Yep. It sure is, which leads me into my third and, and final piece of research here. And I promise I didn't intentionally theme all of this stuff, but it's <laughs> it's really fitting together well here. It's, uh, it's a tweet from Steven Straza. Yeah, he's the director of research at All Start Charts. And it's a chart of cons- of the consumer discretionary versus the S&P 500. And um, the line he, he said in his tweet was this, discretionary stocks entering a bear market on a relative terms was a pretty good leading signal during the last two crashes where we are there now. And it shows as these consumer discretionary charts turn over, as this retail spending, this idea that, you know, once the consumer starts to slow down, obviously you're going to see your consumer discretionary stocks come down. That's Mm -hmm. natural. It's a leading indicator. But the point he makes is that, you know, once that level hits, Oftentimes in the past two major, major crises, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble crash and the and the, finance, the great financial crisis, uh, that was just the beginning and the market went a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not to say that I'm taking this chart at 100%. It could go higher from here. But it's an interesting point just to remind people that, like you mentioned in, in your research notes, these bear markets can be drawn out. And you can have bear market rallies, as as Matt has talked about in the past mm-hmm. couple con- uh, past couple podcasts. Um, but you know, we still could go lower from here. That's not. That's not out of the, the realm of possibility,
1: right? Exactly, yeah. And and Jenna will put this on the on the screen as well for everybody to see because this is a it's a pretty good one, mm-hmm. um, you know. And when we say consumer discretionary relative to the S and P, it's plotting you know uh, the discretionary sector versus the S and P five hundred. So every time the consumer discretionary sector has been underperforming by twelve or by, excuse me by twenty percent from its peak. And this is that that indicator that that Stephen is showing right here, but um, it it makes sense, right? Because people can go without discretionary items, right? Yep. But they can't go without the staples, right? So obviously, people need food to live. They need water to survive. They're going to continue to be buying their their hair products and yep. their toothpaste and that type of stuff, right? Yep. Um. But you know, people aren't going to be you know, hog wild spending on Amazon as much anymore, or you know, they might not be able to afford a Tesla, right? Yeah. It's like that discretionary stuff. Those are two names, just as an example, that are in the discretionary sector. Uh, a lot of the retail names, right? So, um, again, something that makes sense to me with the savings rate coming back down to normal, with the inflation that we're seeing right now, mm-hmm. it makes sense that discretionary stocks are getting hit because of where we are in this economic cycle. Absolutely. Um, I'll take it over from here, Nick, and talk about our financial planning topic of the week. This was an article from PlanCorp, and this was back in actually July of 2020, titled The Untold Advantages of Your Employee Stock Purchase Plan. So something I don't think we've really talked about a lot here um, before is that a lot of these publicly traded companies, Nick, um, they have an employee stock purchase plan where their employees can either one buy stock uh, in the company at a discount via weekly payroll deductions um, or they can buy up to a certain amount of stock every single week or every pay period at no discount. And I think this is one of the most underutilized benefits at these companies, just because I've worked with publicly traded companies that have this option. And just from seeing it, a lot of people don't utilize it. Mm -hmm. Um, So my goal of this is to kind of break down how these stock purchase plans work and give people an idea of what they could be useful for. Okay. So an ESPP, so also known as an Employee Stock Purchase Plan, is a valuable benefit offered by some publicly traded companies. It allows employees to purchase company shares at a discount, often at 5% to 15% of the fair market value. How does an ESPP work? There will be maximums associated with how much stock you'll be able to buy per pay period since your company automatically funds it directly from your paycheck. Given what a good deal an ESPP can be, it's not surprising there are limits on how much you can contribute. The IRS currently sets a pre-discount upper limit of $25,000 per calendar year. So for employee stock purchase plans with a 10% discount, meaning that employees can buy the stock for 10% cheaper than what it's trading at, the most you can, you can purchase each calendar year is $22,500. Um, and that's obviously just 25 grand minus 2,500. So, if you don't have a discount plan through your ins- employee stock purchase plan and you can just buy stock via weekly payroll deductions, the most amount you can buy every year is $25,000. Um, but in addition to the IRS restrictions, companies often further restrict contributions. The cap varies, but often ranges from 10 to 20% of your salary. Your company can also place a dollar limit on the contribution below the IRS limit. Also take note that the percentage of income you elect to contribute is based on your pre-tax salary, not your take-home pay. That means a 10% election will decrease your take-home paycheck by more than 10% after all tax withholdings and various deductions. If you find yourself cash strapped and you over contribute to an ESPP, you can sell some shares as soon as they are purchased to generate extra income. However, it is important to understand the tax ramifications of selling ESPP shares. In fact, ESPP tax planning deserves a conversation of its own. And just to keep this at a very high level, Nick, and not go into it too much, there's two different positions in an employee stock purchase plan. One's a disqualifying position, and one's a qualifying position. So a disqualifying position is when you hold your shares of your company for less than 12 months. All of that, including the gain off of the discount you got on the fair market value, is taxed at your ordinary income, right? So there's an incentive there to hold these shares for longer than 12 months. Just opposite of that, a qualifying position Uh, is when you have shares that are held for at least one year after the purchase date. Those gains are taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. However, the company discount is always taxed at your ordinary income level. Okay? So when you're buying shares at a discount, whatever that discount is, that's going to be taxed at ordinary income Mm -hmm. when you sell your shares. Okay? Okay. Uh, getting to the meat and potatoes of this is what I wanted to talk about is using the ESPP to fund your financial goals. So, you know, one of the things that we talk about when we we talk with employees of publicly traded companies, Nick, is, you know, if you're saving for a down payment on a home or you're saving for a new car, or even if you're just trying to save to build up your emergency fund to three to six months living expenses, why not do that and get a discount in buying your own company's stock to where you can go ahead and sell that and fund your down payment on your home, a new mm-hmm. vacation home, a new car, rather than taking out a loan for five, six, 7% and eventually paying more right. than what you need, right? right yeah. So, this is just a way for someone to save for near term goals. And what, what else that I've seen from publicly traded companies, if they don't offer, for their employees to buy shares at a discount, they'll do like a match, kind of like a 401k. So, yeah, you yep. know, people can contribute up to $400 per pay period of their um, pay to buy company stock, and that company will match them up to 5% or 10% of whatever they're contributing. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that's just free money. That if you're not taking advantage of that and maximizing that out, You're just missing out on free money because you can turn around and sell that stock right away and move it to your bank account and just take the match, whatever the company gave you, and you have automatically five or 10%, whatever the match is, more than if you're just saving money every month directly from your paycheck into your savings account. Right. Right. So it's giving you that extra bump to get to those goals quicker. Um, so Peter kind of notes, you know, three three different ways to, to use ESPPs uh, in, in retirement planning and financial planning. Number one is supplementing your cash flow. And he says, when you first enroll in an ESPP, it may hurt to see that chunk of change coming out of your paycheck. But if properly managed, you can ultimately end up with more after tax pay compared to not participating. Uh, number two is saving for near term goals, kind of what we just talked about. So Uh, They can help quickly fund near term goals like buying a home um, in the next year or two. And he says, even after tax, your rate of return from selling vested ESPP shares as soon as you receive them should be many times higher than today's highest yielding savings account. It's like adding a Powerball to your savings every time a new batch of stocks vest in your account. Number three is investing towards long-term goals. ESPPs can also help you reach longer-term goals, such as retirement. Whether you hold company company shares as a small part of your portfolio or diversify them periodically, the compounding of ESPP can add up quickly. For example, if Alex consistently contributed $450 every paycheck for 10 years, that could add up to as much as $200,000 pre-tax. So again, you know, these employee stock purchase plans are another really good way so that you have, you can even use it as like an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. So if you needed money, you could sell the shares and take that money and do whatever you need to do with it. But it's a really good way for people not to have to take out debt, like personal loans or even worse 401k loans, because that's what I've seen. Most, most employers, uh, offer the ability to take 401k loans. And I wish they didn't because, Um, you take that money out and it's losing the magic of compounding. It's not in there and growing there for you. Another, uh, another, uh, sticking point for me as to not take 401k loans is if you take your 401k loan, you're repaying that, right? Mm-hmm. And even though you're paying quote unquote yourself back, if you're repaying that loan, you're probably not contributing as much as you were to your 401k, And if you aren't contributing as much as you were to your 401k pre-tax, that's artificially raising your taxable income because you get to deduct your pre-tax contributions to your 401k off of your tax return. Right. So there's a lot of different intricacies with taking 401k loans. And this is why if people have stock purchase plans, I so highly recommend it mm-hmm. to just completely avoid ever taking a 401k loan because it is a massive difference yeah. in the ending value of your 401k if you take loans throughout your career.
2: Yes, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah i try to avoid it if you can.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I didn't, again, (laughs) didn't mean to get on a rant there, but um, definitely one of my my passions is going through and helping people with their uh, employee benefits plans. Mm -hmm. And this is just one of the things that I see that is available to a lot of people that work for publicly traded companies, but it's not necessarily utilized as much as it should be. Um, And we're all about here, you know, during the good times, prepare for the bad times, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We go through cycles in the economy. So let's build up this company stock that you have so that when we enter into a recession, which inevitably we're going to be in eventually, we have a pool of money that we can access to get you through those tough times, Yep. right? Yeah, love it. Um, So I think that's all I had this week. Nick, anything else you want to leave listeners with before we wrap up for the week?
2: No, that's everything for me. Thanks for having me again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be heading into the month of June, uh, almost going to be halfway through the year here in another month or so. Um, Again, just want to leave listeners with, uh, I would anticipate more volatility over the near term. Um, typically, in midterm election years, markets tend to start to creep up towards the end of summer, early fall. And then usually in midterm election years, most of the year's return comes in Q4. Yep.
2: Um,
1: so again, uh, not abnormal for us to see this right now. A lot of other noise out there, but um, we will get through this, have a long time horizon. Um, it's part of the things we have to go through as investors in the markets. Um, so, uh, we'll get through it, but we will be back with you next week for episode number 152. Hope you all have a great long Memorial day weekend and just like to thank everybody who has, uh, served our country. Uh, we wouldn't yes, have the freedoms absolutely. today that, that we would, if it weren't for them and, uh, the sacrifices that them and their family has made. So, yeah, that's right. uh, Thanks. thank you to everybody who Thanks has served and, and let's celebrate them and everybody have a great weekend.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict.